Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. We've used science to, to prolong life, to increase security and happiness. But it can also be used for destruction. Are we going to use it constructively? It'll be up to you, and you too. I always like listening to that uh, over the lag because the music will slow down and then it will catch up with itself. So it's like riding a roller coaster. <laughs> uh, we've been watching a lot of TV and, and stuff. Have you um, catching up on some old movies? You've seen Fight Club, right? Back, yes, back I have. You know, the first rule of Fight Club. Um, uh, never talk about Fight Club. Do you know the first rule of passive aggressive Fight Club? <laughs> I don't. You, you I, uh, know no, what? I need. You know what? Never mind. It's fine. <laughs> I was struggling to come up with something that would have been funny, but that was even better than what I would have, would have thought of. So that's pretty. That's pretty great. Well, how are you, Mark Middleton? Oh, we are well uh, over here. Uh, uh, this in this household. My mom has been uh, living with us the last week as she uh, lives down near you in. Malala, oh, what's been going on? Uh, Malala, Oregon. There's been uh, a blaze. Uh, Oregon has been a blaze, <laughs> and um, uh, and I'm sure we'll yeah, let's let's talk about the fires. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oregon's on fire, and uh, the West Coast is on fire. Um, there were. 38, 36 or 38 active fires in the state of Oregon alone, 16 of which are like uh, mega fires and eight of which they predict will continue burning until the winter rains come. Wow. Uh, and so there's there's going to be eight mega fires in our state <laughs> that are just going to continue burning <laughs> because they don't have the resources the capacity, the, you know, the terrain, any of the things in order to manage anything until the rain puts it out. At this point, we literally live in a sci-fi movie. And I don't mean like science fiction. I mean, from the channel sci-fi, because now we're having like mega fires versus <laughs> Gatorsaurus. Sure, sure yeah, it's it's um, the the pictures are apocalyptic uh yeah the, the imagery the uh you know nick went down and and helped my mom kind of evacuate and move and and the pictures are straight out of uh blade Hell. runner 2049 yeah they're, they're the world is it's just wild uh, yeah that's something that that is funny the explosion of articles on this over the last week have been interesting because something i think everybody immediately noticed when they try to take pictures is that all of our cameras auto correct the white balance and so it doesn't look like the yellow and dingy and stuff like that and i was trying to figure out i was talking with one of the one of the kids about that somehow implies that our phones not or our ca the camera sensors in our phone not only can, you know, 
figure out just what light is coming in, but it knows what it's looking at and what color it should be. Is that right? That's crazy. Well, it's going to do its best to find things that it thinks are white and adjust the entire picture to that thing. How does and it know what's white? <laughs> don't know. So that's that's what I ended up having to do is that I brought up on my computer screen a color bar chart against a bright white background and then I stood across the room and then I focused on that and and yeah. locked the exposure and then walked outside and took a picture and then it looked like what it was supposed to look like. The yeah, the other thing that you can do is put something white or um, a very specific color in the photo and then when you bring it into Photoshop to color adjust the photo okay. to that because item. I kept yeah because my car is white too and so it's like oh so this must be and yeah so that's been interesting I've seen a couple different articles on that but I do have some good news what do you have look at this I have a reveal uh, you you have a laptop oh I think it's turned <laughs> that's, off that's turned off and oh <laughs> Anyway, oh, that was anticlimactic. It was I don't think it's working out. So, <laughs> so my friend, maybe it's this house. Well, so our friends at the, at the Not Nerd Podcast, Dave Baylor, had my. This oh, is, they what? fixed. They fixed your laptop. The, he, yeah, he likes to tinker on old stuff, Dave Baylor, and so he fixed it, and he's been showing videos of it all, all week, and he's had it there and testing it, and he brought it. He dropped it off this morning and opened it up and it worked. And so that my reveal was going to be that. And, and now, now, it's, now broken. it's not working again. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> and he had been testing it and turning it on and off of like for of course. two weeks now. Now it's broken. Good job. Well, maybe it's just this house. <laughs> well, Mercury's in retrograde. If, and yeah, if that things. doesn't if that doesn't sum up uh, 2020 right there, <laughs> I don't know what does. Uh, well, uh, let's. Oh, I we do talk, have. Can we talk political for just a minute? Uh, I, sure. I generally don't. And I, I mentioned this on our little uh, chat yesterday. I think, you know, clearly the Democrats, us Democrats, were terrible at winning anything. We're, we're really good at screwing things up and, and losing any yes. advantage that we might have had. Snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. <laughs> totally. And I, I've just been amazed at the effectiveness of Fox News to find a laser focused thing to then beat the drum on until everybody in the planet believes that thing to be true. And right. uh, the example is Benghazi. Uh, literally when you Google the city of Benghazi in Google, a picture of Hillary Clinton comes up in Google's results and they have so effectively destroyed reputation of Hillary Clinton with that one word, and they just beat that drum so consistently, thoroughly, across the board, everything. And we, as 
I'm talking about me and my clan of Democrats are so terrible about like, well, everything's broken. And so that doesn't resonate with anyone. You have to have a laser focus. And so we are ruining, we'll talk about something for four hours about how disastrous that is and crazy and unprecedented and scandalous and all the things and then we move on to the next one because it's just as shocking and trump for all that he's great at what he's brilliant at is throwing wrenches into machines to distract and turn people away from what they should be looking at and so he'll do things that are very controversial very specifically to distract and take attention away from something that isn't you know it's a moving target it's a moving target and so and we fall into that trap and go and we we chase that tail and um i'm i'm so saddened by the number of scandals the the severity of the scandals as a veteran i'm i'm saddened at all of the military things that have come out recently and all all this stuff and and at the same time i'm watching this all unfold of like oh we are terrible about informing the public about something that should be addressed and should be crystal clear we dilute and fog and everything by <coughs> trying to make 87 things crystal clear instead right. of one thing crystal clear I think part of the, the part of the problem was, and this is all this is all marketing, which is what you know yeah. you and, and I that's do. That's what we're talking about. And I, I think part of it is that when you look at um, conservatives and liberals in this country, just kind of broadly speaking, um, and the the Fox News demographic, when Fox News speaks to its demographic, it can use one message. Because that demographic is very mm. homogenous, it's very integrated, so it's very, very one thing. Interesting. The the Democrats have to represent the rest of eighty okay. percent of America, which right. in that has ten thousand different political stances, ideas. Mm. Like it literally just is the rest of not con- <clears throat> not this twenty percent conservative. Right. And so it's harder to message to all of those groups in a cohesive way. But that doesn't mean they're not terrible at it. I mean, they need to hammer on, like right now, what I would do is hammer home. They have no plan because right right now the Republican Party does not have a platform. And it's been shown over and over, you know, healthcare, you know, global. Do you know that the the official Republican Party stance is that global warming exists and man, it is man made. Like, and they've said it, but that's still like. So yeah, it's it's it's, it's crazy, right? But I think that just from a marketing standpoint, that that is what's going on. But they. They do need someone, and I think the Democrats are just too nice. Right. Like, they are, speaking of the passive-aggressive joke, they are passive-aggressive <laughs> because they can't, 
they can't they can't afford to lose anyone that they have. Right. So, yeah, <sighs> it's it's stupid. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> I deem this stupid. Hey, do you want do you want to have our first edition of our favorite game show? Yes. Okay, let's play. Are you cisgender? (laughs) Now, Mark, I have a question for you. Yes. Are you cisgender? I am. Okay, because for some reason I was conflating. I think a part of it is. uh, gender preference, which of course right. would be the cisgender part, and um, and sexual preference, and so I was like, oh, but I guess it's just if you read the gender you are, you are cisgender regardless of of attraction, correct? So my understanding of of cisgender is I identify with the gender assigned to me at birth. Right. Okay. And so. Uh, when I was born, I was assigned male, and right. I identify as male. If right. I'm trans, then those two are different. So okay. I was I was identified at birth as male. I am I, I personally identify as female. That's trans. Okay. And okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and I don't know why it's never occurred to me, but I was like, oh, that's kind of funny because, yeah, <laughs> you get to be, and no one's mistaken you. I, I love you and all, Mark, but no one's mistaken you for a woman. So, nope. <laughs> no, it, you know, and, and uh, I, I worked for a long time, worked for three or four years, not a, a ton of time, but uh, a considerable amount of time at a, um, a youth center for sexual minorities. And so that it, uh, was everybody but the heterosexuals and uh, but uh heteros were allowed as allies uh but it was a safe place for youth who uh identified with any sexual minority to have a safe place to uh collaborate and learn and and just resources resources and, and, and education and, yeah, drop-in center and the whole thing and it was really really eye-opening for me as somebody who I grew up uh closeted gay and had no I'd never had an issue with gender identity it was always about sexual identity for me and so during our training they lined us all up on one side of the room and said take a step forward if you identify with this statement you know and I have a mother and a father who have never been divorced, you know, and 20% of the people step forward, whatever. Um, and the one that really like opened my eyes was, um, I feel comfortable going to a public restroom in the gender that I choose to use, right? And that has never once been a question for me ever in my life. I've never like, right. well, I kind of feel like I should go. No, it, it's just never been a thing for me. But there's a considerable population who they dress and and identify as one gender, and they uh, were assigned at birth at a different gender. And uh, when they go to use the restroom, they feel very conflicted, very... Um, it, sometimes there's shame. Sometimes there's 
uh, fear of retaliation or discrimination or, or safety or and safety and, and all those things. And, and it was just that one moment that clicked and like, oh, my gosh, I, I had never considered this as being a thing. And so uh, gender gender identity is it's fascinating and interesting and and the the community that i was able to learn about and become really good friends with is incredibly diverse and artistic and and all the things that you know humans are and i'm yeah. like oh <laughs> these we're just all humans and yeah. uh and the struggles that i have are different from the struggles that this person has uh but they're comparable and neither is you know undealable you know yeah. they're both able to be dealt with and uh if it's, it's mentionable it's manageable it's mentionable it's manageable so yeah yeah smirk <laughs> well an interesting dis- an interesting statistic that i heard this week was um between <laughs> i'm gonna try to phrase this if in a I, I haven't I haven't formed the joke yet all okay. the way in my head, but I, <laughs> now uh, gender reveal parties have done <laughs> have killed more people than marijuana and transgendered people in bathrooms combined. <laughs> so, sad, yeah. but still true. workshopping that a yeah, little yeah. No, bit. No, I, it's, I get you. It's a little clunky. Yeah. Um, did, were uh, you the one that sent me the video of the other gender reveal party with the uh, hand explosives, the the little um, the tube little pop. where you, the poppers, yeah, and yeah. They, they notoriously, notoriously, uh, they they aimed them the wrong way. Oh yes, and I just... so it was aimed right at his crotch, and so upon firing, <laughs> uh, he re- removed his gender. That uh, is hilarious. Uh, well, a couple more things uh, before we get into news and stuff like this. Um, since we haven't recorded for a while, I have my my little ongoing thing of notes to remember to to say. So there, I fell into the, an interesting rabbit hole on YouTube where it was this guy who is a, a, a Hollywood composer, and he's based on where he was zoom chatting from he is very very successful because his house looked amazing but he's like this super um super star wars fan so much so that for the last 20 years he's been working on a project to restore an original print of star wars which um even in the by the time in 1983 when they they were making return of the jedi they realized Kodak realized that all of the film stock that they sold and used like disintegrates in five years or whatever. So they've been trying to restore things. And, and the, the original negative I believe is either not usable or, or lost or destroyed or something at this point. And so this guy was talking about how, you know, they've done 4k remasters and stuff of star Wars and stuff like that. But a lot of that is just post-production type thing where you're, um, doing kind of all sorts of algorithms and things that you're add you're adding to something instead of making it what originally was, and so he's invented this uh, this whole process of restoring a negative uh, that's so wildly expensive no one ever is going to do it. So it's just become like his passion project. 
But what he's done, so like even if you go back to the original film negatives and original film prints, because of how film works, there will be a flaw or a hair, you know, or something on each individual thing. So even using that, you won't be able to get, you know, a crystal clear picture. So what he's doing is he's finding as many original negatives as he's he can and he's invented this crazy computer program algorithm thing that that more or less stacks all of those original prints so that if there's a gap or if there's a flaw or if there's a grain in one of them it looks to those other negatives for that information and fills that in and he was showing like the original prints and then the 4k restoration and then what he's been able to do and what he has been able to do is insane it is way better than the 4k wow. it it and he keeps saying like this isn't just an original print this is better than anyone has been able to see like even in 1977 in the theater you would not be able to see it this well because it's bigger and better than any individual thing it can right. be. And so it's this, it was like this three hour discussion that he was having on YouTube, just kind of doing a live thing and people were asking questions and he was showing all these different clips and he still has not been able to do the whole movie because it's so wildly expensive, but right. he's, yeah, it's just, it was a super fascinating process of making this <clears throat> and, and the footage he was getting yeah. was amazing. Film and that original print yeah. doesn't exist anymore because George Lucas took it away. And even the one that's in the, like the national film library is the 1997 restoration, which just oh, looks wow. like garbage. Right. And so he's like, I just want this for, you know, posterity. We, we need to have what this was in the context of film and film study and all of that. And so it's, yeah, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Film so, restoration but, is, is really interesting with what, uh, AI is doing uh, with with big data and being able to do those algorithms and, and everything. I, there was somebody who posted on Reddit uh, a couple weeks ago one of the very first um, recordings of a video ever made. And uh, it was literally this guy's grandmother spinning wool, you know, and uh, in kind of their backyard, right? And the frame is tiny and it was really jaggedy and you know, it's like two frames a second or you know it's just really terrible and uh somebody took that video and then did all of those algorithms on it and it's just a, a short 10 second clip but you know made it 60 frames a second and made it 16 by 9 and brought in the things and then smoothed out the things and took away all of the static and in pretty soon you're like Oh, I I can actually see this this lady who is spinning wool, and it's less about the jagged things, and you you start to lose that uh, you know sense of I'm looking at a at a yeah really bad movie, and start to look at the character in the movie. And, and well, I didn't end up seeing the movie, but uh, didn't Peter Jackson do that World War One? footage restoration of like the soldiers and all that and yeah basically did that that sort of thing They're, those are amazing yeah uh yeah and they yeah, but... they layer in sounds in that with and and so like there's there's a couple um uh 
Netflix documentaries maybe that one is World War Two in color and then there was World mm. War One in color and uh, and they they colorize and and stuff but World War Two actually has some color film uh, done some yeah. way but yeah, yeah it's it's phenomenal. Anyway, yeah, but and one one last thing. Um, speaking of YouTube and Star Wars, I stumbled across this great documentary on YouTube, and now I can't re- now I can't remember what it's called. But it's about this summer in I forget, and I forget what year it was. But at Disney Disneyland, put together a science fiction rock band. Like kind of based on Star Wars, but not really called Halix, H-A-L-Y-X. And it's the story of like just and it just is one summer that they had. it, But it's this whole like hour long documentary about the people who are in the band. It's just super fascinating and super good. And especially if you're into like vintage Disneyland stuff, it's really great. I think it was it's probably on that defunct land channel because it's right. He does a lot of that. I, um, I love that channel. I, yeah. I think I've watched them all. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you haven't seen that one, it's really great. There's so many great, uh, like, wonderful things that Disney has done in years past that you had no idea existed. And um, just terrible decisions, good decisions, things that they should have kept but didn't, and things that should have never been greenlit and... <laughs> Uh, yeah. And, yeah. That uh, whole channel is great. Yep. Um, well, you know what? We're, we're, I'm going to, I'm going to note, I'm going to tell the affiliates that we're going a little long today. So I'm going <laughs> to go keep on that documentary train. There's also uh, a documentary on Netflix about Rubik's Cubers. Have you seen that? I, I, I don't think I've seen the documentary. I've seen, uh, other little, uh, especially around uh, speed cubing, and, yeah, uh, and so I bought a speed cube just so I could oh, nice. see like what it feels like and and uh, you know the experience. But the techniques that these mostly kids use to uh, they can they can look at a cube, close their eyes, solve the cube, things like that are just just crazy. Yeah, so the Netflix documentary is a lot like you know Spellbound or like one of those crossword right. puzzle documentaries or whatever about the, the the yearly competition or whatever. And you know, there's the one guy who's been winning for ten years, and then and this one, the new guy who comes in to smash all the records is this um, kid with uh, on the autism spectrum, and like. And so it's it's that kid's whole story, which is neat because he kind of went from being a nonverbal kid to like being able to do this in front of crowds. And then like if you lose, you have to learn like all of those things that you have to teach kids with autism, which I found fascinating. And so that was it's super worth checking out because it's just heartwarming and great. And it's just a fun, neat little story there. But there's also a documentary called Tread that's on Netflix. And it's about. Something that I kind of remembered happening, and I forget there was a big news story like the week after that kind of dr- that that um, kicked it out of the news cycle. But it was a it's about this guy. I think it was in Colorado, some tiny little town in Colorado that um, he, he was having 
kind of a Hatfield and McCoy type thing with the rest of the town. He was considered the new guy in town, even though he'd been living there for like 10 or 15 years. And so there was like all these little disputes and like he owned this piece of land, like the people in town who had always controlled the town wanted. And so they like did all this thing where they, oh, you have to be connected to the sewer pipe when it was like just to make a payout, like all that bureaucracy to try to get him to, to be to get rid of his land. And this guy ended up buying one of those gigantic, like huge bulldozers, like the gigantic ones. Right. And spent an entire winter <laughs> welding steel, like it, steel, two layers of steel with concrete in the middle to all of the outside of it, making it into this giant tank, indestructible tank, and then just drove it all over the city, like smashing everything in its wake. And they could not, like they were shooting explosives at it. They were trying to ram it with every, like all of this, like this crazy story about this guy who was kind of the, kind of a Unabomber type. Right. <laughs> in retrospect. Was that, the guy, was that in San Diego? The one in San No, Diego. it was different because I was confusing oh, it with that guy because right, I remember right. him. Totally. And he was, dri- he was driving tank. an actual tank. Right, okay. But yeah, this guy built his own out of this giant thing. And and so I'm not, I won't spoil anything more than that. I mean, that's even kind of a spoiler, but it's called Tread and it's on Netflix. And it's just about, and this guy recorded, of course, because he's a nutcase, recorded himself you know, talking into this tape recorder while he's planning it and like the disputes and all this stuff. Oh and my goodness. I it's, am totally going to check that out. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. So do uh, this, check this that last, out. This last weekend we went up to uh, Port Townsend, uh, which is way at the North uh, end of the Kitsap Peninsula uh, towards Canada in Washington. Um <clears throat> And I used to live, when I was in the Navy, near there, <clears throat> excuse me, up by Bremerton. And so uh, we just wanted to get away. So we found a, a tiny little hotel that didn't have a lot of people at it. And uh, we just went up for a day trip and spent the night and came back. But uh, the one thing that we did do, <clears throat> we were trying to do things that had no contact with other humans and, and, and such. So we did a lot of driving and we visited the Olympic game farm and it is, uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's a, um, it's a game preserve for mostly North American animals, but there's others, uh, represented as well. There's llamas and zebras, but, uh, there's bear and bison and, um, uh, lots of llamas and alpacas and uh the bison were the most aggressive about it so when you arrive you um it's a drive-through park you don't have to see or talk to any humans except at the gate you pay your money and uh you get as you know up to three loaves of bread to uh <laughs> to feed these animals and um we went through it and the bison just got really aggressive in your window all the way you know their head is in your lap and their gigantic tongues they're, they're twirling like 18 around. inches long 
you know, just stretching out, trying to get some more bread. And um, when I gave him one piece, but he wanted two, he like headbutted me, you know, (laughs) he's just like, you know, and and, come on, I want more. And and it was it was absolutely insane. It was it was a fun little uh, trip. (laughs) They've got a, a really massive acreage where these animals can uh, roam free and interact with cars only if they want to. It's not like a zoo in that way. Right. And um, uh, we had a lot of fun. And so I've heard about it for years. It's been around forever. Heard about it for years. And uh, I brought it up to Nick. Nick had never heard of it, but he's, uh, so that's the Squim. It's in Squim, Washington. Oh, okay. The Olympic Olympic Game Farm. My cousin lives in Squim. Yay. So is that different that you guys often go to the the wildlife park in so, Oregon or whatever? So yeah. is it different? Uh, I mean, the, I know it's a different one, but it's a different one. Yeah, the the park in Oregon is definitely more uh, international, and so they've got a lot more African, uh, you know, uh, animals, and so they've got a big cheetah population and uh, giraffes and and. Uh, a lot of different yaks and and things uh so and it's bigger so the the oregon one is bigger and uh we love that that that's one of my favorite places to go are there so bison there uh no i don't think so okay uh, they did have elk at both places uh so we got to feed an elk ostriches um, ostriches not at uh the olympic game farm okay. but they're uh yeah Oh, uh, emus were the were the ones at uh, in Oregon. Those oh, would okay. come up to your to your window and peck at you and, and try and get the food. Uh, awesome. well, that's cool. What? Yeah, I've yeah. never been to one of those, and I kind of want to, but they kind of do scare me because they do come in and like make everything just disgusting with their tongue. Like I couldn't handle <laughs> not want to, taking a full on shower if I was touched by a yak tongue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should totally do that together. That'd be awesome. Uh, all right. Well, let's take a look at some of the news. Uh, this first story is kind of old, and uh, it's kind of been um, read by a lot of the podcasts I listen to, especially not Nerd, because they already had this. But I, I flagged it for another reason, too. It's um, an aroma sculptor who builds scents that smell like outer space. And so I'd seen the story going around and stuff like that. And uh, I so I Googled it so I could pull it and, and read it. And I found it on like six or seven different websites, but I'm like, this is all just the same article. And I looked at the byline and it is from, I think, the Associated Press in France, but it just said like that was kind of hidden. And it's interesting, especially now that we're uh, again in an election season to make sure that if you are vetting articles to make sure that they aren't just copied and pasted. And so it, it was interesting because usually... I don't know. I, I don't know why this struck me so much this time, but it, it's because it was just word for word instead of like they didn't even try to change it or anything like that or do additional <laughs> reporting or anything. Um, but yes, go go smell like space if you'd like to on that one. That's fun. Well, th- yeah, go ahead. No, no, that's fun. Uh, like oh. uh, it. And so it apparently space smells like a blend of metallic carbon and sulfur notes combined to titillate the nostrils and the imagination yes and this article was like way longer than this because it was written by the guy making it who was like some 
smell sommelier for lack of a better word and who's like super into it um but it does yeah it say it says humans have about 260 odor sensors situated in the olfactory mucosa which is the organ of smell located in the upper region of the navel category uh cavity quote an odor occurs when a molecule encounters a sensor in your uh mucosa generating a signal that will cause a sensation in you uh, and that it's different for every single individual um, because it's tied in with memory and tied in with all those things. So hmm. anyway, um, well, this is a shortened, very complex article if you'd like to look uh, more of it. But the gist of it is that after 48 years, the Democrats, speaking of platforms, have endorsed nuclear energy. So not since the uh-huh. times of Richard Nixon. Um, uh, it's part of their one of their plans to um, let's see. uh to look at approaches that include all zero carbon technologies, including hydrocarbon, geothermal, existing and advanced nuclear and carbon capture storage. Um, so it is a new position, but they are calling for things that are kind of daunting and not very possible because they're like, within five years, we will install 500 million solar panels. And right now there's like a total of one million of them. And so... <laughs> It's very pie in the sky, of course, so I'm sure that will be used right. to fight against this. But um, as we said, we probably should figure out something since it is a bipartisan knowledge that global warming exists and is caused by man. <laughs> so there is that. There is. Um, you know who's still alive? Who's still alive? <laughs> Al Jaffe of Mad Magazine. Now, do you know who that is? I don't. Okay, so I, were you yeah. a Mad Magazine reader I, or not? I, only, uh, only very, very occasionally, and I, I was never a, a devourer of right. Mad Magazine. It'd only be for, you know, trying to find the boobs in the articles or you know, <laughs> in the cartoons or whatever. And, um, it it was always so shocking. You know, had 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 articles and and comics that would were there to evoke uh, you know a, a shock um but yeah it it wasn't wasn't part of my lexicon so yeah growing up i was a proud mad magazine subscriber so al jaffe uh is one of the cartoonists and he he did uh, a kind of a bunch of recurring ones including snappy answers to stupid questions <laughs> and he was the one responsible for the fold-in magazine in, or the mad magazine fold-in which is that back panel where it's a cartoon and then you fold it in half and it makes a a new picture oh um, yeah 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 yeah, so he is the one that popularized that, and if and I'm sure if you'd see his art style, you totally recognize it because it's very, sure. very distinct. But he is saying goodbye after ninety nine, after at the age of ninety nine, he is finally wow. retiring uh, from cartooning. So um, great to see that he's still kicking along. He's had a, just a huge influence on on just comedy in general because everybody that's in comedy grew up with Mad right. Magazine and and devouring that and and. So shout out born to in, him. Born in 1921 in Savannah, Georgia. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of, uh, well, not speaking of anything. I know we briefly mentioned marijuana t- 20 minutes Weed. ago for some reason, but the House <laughs> will vote on federal marijuana legalization for the first time. Uh, but the bill's future in the Senate is uncertain. So um, 
There will be a vote on legalizing uh, marijuana for the at the federal level for the first time in the chamber's history later this month. A hurdle Democrat uh, Democrats and advocates are celebrating as Congress grapples with a host of pressing issues before the election. Um, so they since there's kind of uh, state by state as many many of them are decriminalizing marijuana at the state level. And there's been more of an acceptance um, in society about uh, about the views of marijuana. They're uh, looking to change that on a federal level because I believe it is still considered a Schedule One drug, which is as dangerous as heroin and cocaine and whatever angel dust is. Is angel dust still a thing? I could never remember. I, you know, I I smack. Or, yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Angel dust was was a massive issue in the eighties. I remember we, you know, so and so jumped off a roof. Uh, it was they, always jumping were, off a roof. <laughs> they, they did it because they were on angel dust. They thought they could fly because they were on angel they, dust. Right. And so, <laughs> uh, I and I think that that marketing worked better than just say no. Like uh, I never wanted to do angel dust because I figured I would probably think i could fly and jump off a roof and that that was more practical than just say no right so it seemed a lot more <laughs> tangible more something i could work with i'm like okay uh, so <laughs> I, i'm reading reading this and yeah um is the house majority leader not the same thing as the speaker of the house i thought that they the Speaker of the House was the House Majority Leader. No, it's different. It's funny you mentioned Speaker of the House because I was looking that up this week trying to figure out because I was like, wait a minute. I can get rid of Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi <laughs> if all I have to do is vote for a centrist. <laughs> because like I, I was trying to figure out and there's all these convoluted rules to how the Speaker of the House gets there. But um, but yeah, because I, I think I think they're affiliated with the minority party. But I couldn't quite. And then the, Who, who's who's with the minority party? Well, I think the Speaker of the House represents the minority party, which is why it's a Democrat right now. And the House majority leader is someone else. Oh, wait, but that's he's a Democrat. No. I don't know. Yeah. No, no. See, uh, Speaker of the House it used to be Paul Ryan when there was a majority of Republicans. Okay. And now it's Nancy Pelosi because there's a majority in the House of Democrats. But okay. I also see that leader Staney Hoyer, <laughs> who I've never heard of, is the House Majority Leader. And I've never our, heard of that person. Our government is so dumb. <laughs> because the Senate operates, you know, the the majority leader of the Senate leads the Senate. Right. Or or does the Well House yeah, no, that's no, no, Mitch McConnell. You know, it's Mitch McConnell, but doesn't isn't the vice president actually the leader of the Senate? Uh, like he is the vote. Uh, he's the tiebreaker. He is the tiebreaker, vote. and the uh, and Nancy Pelosi is second in line to the presidency. So it goes vice president, right. then speaker right. of the House. Okay, um, I need I need a civics lesson to straighten. This well, yeah, and it's funny because I've looked it up three times this week, and I still cannot figure out who and how they get there. I've like read the Wikipedia article like five times. Huh. Um, but yeah, they do expect okay. that. Um, where is it here? That it will have 
Uh, it's likely to fail in the Republican majority Senate, um, but ad- advocates still see it as a step forward. So there is that. I think all as soon as all of the wives realize that CBD oil does something to make their skin look useful, there will be a mass a mass energy to get that um, fully legalized. Um, I will skip that there's been nearly 100 earthquakes uh, in Yellowstone in the last 24 hours because I don't know that we need that kind of news in 2020. <laughs> there, uh, just, it, just know that if the uh, super volcano of Yellowstone goes, uh, it'll be the last thing that happens in our life uh, as it will eviscerate the planet Earth and uh, w- we won't exist anymore. It's I literally the the volcano is as big as the state of it, like Montana and and or whatever uh, Wyoming, and um, uh, and so if it goes, it will ruin the planet. Yes, habitabil- habitability. Uh, okay, so the majority leader is second in command to the Speaker of the House. The majority leader continues to represent his or her district in the U.S. House of Representatives. Like the Speaker, however, the majority leader usually doesn't serve on committees. So uh, they are separate people. So how do... Yeah, anyway. <clears throat> For more information on Speaker of the House, go visit Wikipedia and figure right. it out yourself because I cannot. <laughs> right. And then um, come back and tell us. <laughs> Uh, well, one, good grief. I have way too much news here. So I'm going to, um, Portland did ban private and public use of facial recognition technology. Awesome. Uh, so it was the first city to do so, and it was unanimous. So while other cities such as Oakland, San Francisco, and Boston have already prohibited government agencies from using it, Portland is the first that has outlawed private use. So, quote, oh, uh, Portlanders should never be oh. in fear of having their right of privacy be exploited by either their government or by a private institution, said Ted Wheeler. Um, who, if I've noticed anything, it seems like the only thing bringing Portland together is their mutual hatred of Ted Wheeler. So I guess that's something. That is uh, something. <laughs> so anyway, um, the new legislation enables Portland cities uh, within the right to sue for unlawful use of facial recognition. Um, so technology should not exist to amplify or exist existing biases and perpetuate racism because they found that facial recognition technology has repeatedly been criticized and found to have a racial bias, uh, bias leading to wrongful arrest. So um, one thing Portland is doing right is that because I'm a I'm a big fan of that. So um, we were supposed to be. Uh, the interstate bridge on I-5 was supposed to be closed right now, but uh, I, they delayed it because of all the smoke and the uh, people evacuating. So um, they will begin uh, rebegin closure of the northbound span on September 19 uh, at 12 a.m. It will remain closed until September 21. So, um, wow. yeah, it was supposed to be started now, <clears throat> but they changed that due to the amount of traffic of people heading out of town um, for all these So will they just route everybody to 205? Um, there are two sides of the bridge on, and they will do one at a time. So they will, uh, each bridge, I believe, is two or three lanes. And so three they will just, re- three lanes. And so they'll just restrict that, which would be a freaking nightmare. But so I believe that's how they're going to do it. Because to reroute all those people to 205 would be crazy. Uh, yes, agreed. So 
yeah, back in the 90s when they because they shut down the bridge for like a week for um, some construction in the 90s. And I remember like there was ad campaigns and everything leading up to it. And in the mornings, there were two lanes going south and one lane going north on one span of the bridge. And then they swapped it midday so that uh, right. the it would be two going north and one going south. And... Um, and because of all the marketing that they did, there was no traffic at all. And it was like wow. the newscasters went out to like watch the the Carmageddon that was going to happen and everything. It was like, uh, traffic's working fine. Back to you, Bob. Wow. <laughs> that was, well, was maybe crazy. that's a harbinger of good things because I would imagine that's yep. how they're doing it too because it's you cannot close I-5 north like that that would be crazy um (laughs) that is is, the only drawbridge on i-5 all the way from canada to mexico oh wow it's the only stoplight on i-5 oh interesting oh that's crazy (laughs) um well why don't you take this last it's our heartwarming story mark so i'll leave that to you hearing i love you from their owner makes pup's heart rate skyrocket by 46%. Ah, uh, if you've ever wondered how strong your furry's friend's love is for you, here's your answer. In a new in a new study, canine cottages fitted four dogs with special heart rate monitors to track what gets their tails happy wagging, happily wagging uh, the most when interacting with their owners. Based on the data, canine cottages found that dogs' heart rate increases by 46%. When hearing the words, I love you from their owner, my dog is deaf. So, I know. I, that's uh, the first thing I thought of is, is that poor Pug is hearing poor nothing. Poor Isabel Pug hears nothing. Her heart rate doesn't change. Isn't, isn't that the sweetest thing? Yes, yes, it is. Not too far off from humans, the study also found that cuddling, cuddling calms a pup down when they're feeling anxious. When being cuddled, the dog's heart rate decreases by 23%. Now, if there's one thing I know, oh. it's that humans love their pets. And uh, the study also tracked the owner's heart rate and found it increased by 10% on average when they saw their pup over a long period of time. So uh, Nick and I have this conversation pretty frequently because uh, we basically got our pug when our relationship was on the rocks and Nick, instead of... Uh, you know, having a baby. I was going to say, that's what gay people do instead of having a baby to solve all their problems. We get a dog. And, um, and so then we broke up and I took the pug alone (laughs) and then, uh, we got back together 10 months later, but we've had Isabel for 14 and a half years now. And, um, there have been many times where he has expressed if both Nick and Isabel were about to fall off a cliff and I was only able to save one, uh, I would definitely grab Isabel before Nick. <laughs> what is, is the thing? And as she has aged and coming closer to her natural death, that's probably shifted. But <laughs> there, there might have been a period of time. Uh, you know. It depends on how Nick's book sales are doing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah, uh, Isabel Pug is uh, an extraordinary part of our lives. And uh, I know that she calms down when we cuddle her. And 
uh, our voice calmed her uh, when she could hear. Yes, yes. (laughs) That's a great (sighs) article. Uh, All right. Well, let's take a little break here, mostly so I can go to the bathroom, and then we will come back (laughs) in just (laughs) just a second. Bio break. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Bio break. They say that in corporate America. Oh, in corporate America? I thought that was just gaming nerds. I, I we say it on conference calls all the time. Uh, let's take a quick bio break. And oh my gosh, that's <laughs> terrible. Much better. Can we can we keep all the audio of your bio break? <laughs> Did you hear it? Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that this. Oh oh. Yay! His computer turned it on. It said you shut down. Oh, your you shut down your computer because of a problem. Anyway, but yes, mm. isn't that exciting? So yay! Update. You have a computer. For, you have a computer and, again. And thank you to Dave Baylor of Not Nerd again Indeed. for doing that. Apparently, there's two types of graphics cards: an integrated and a something or other. And one of them went on the fritz, and so he like hacked it and bypassed it and did something or other and it's all very exciting so now not only do i have uh my dedicated vhs ripping machine again but i can use my ipod shuffles to their full (laughs) their full uh limit now i can load them without doing this convoluted process of nonsense and i can control to resume where you left off because right now if you if you leave off halfway through a podcast and go to another one or recharge it or anything it starts back at the beginning <sighs> how was that audiobook that we it uh, was great we, yeah so you had uh was you gave at? me a credit uh through your audible for a book called i want my mtv oh, which right. is an oral history of mtv and an oral history is um is when they compiles compile something using only like direct quotes from sources. So it's just told by people who were there instead of it being a narrative or the author doing anything. So it Mm. was in one way and it was like 28 hours long. So that's all I did for like a week was just like stare at a wall, (laughs) listen to it because, because I can't do anything else because my brain's not smart enough to like do two things like that. But it was a little hard because it was all quotes from different people and he didn't really use different voices, which I'm glad because like that would have been ridiculous. But so it was kind of hard to remember who was talking and then who that person was and like all of that. So it got a little, it got a little confusing, but for the most part, it was really, really cool uh, and really great. I do want to, if you do have any other credits laying around, there is a Joel McHale book that I would like to listen oh, to. It's nice. Apparently, he I had no idea he, he wrote a, some sort of biography of some sort. So, um, yeah, we do. But yeah, that was yeah, that was really good, and it was it was uh, a, a good book if anyone's qu- looking for something. I have quite a library, and I have three credits available right now. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that was a little difficult. I had to use a whole different iPod. I think it's an iPod Touch is what that is that my mom gave me uh, because I needed to remember. I needed to remember where I left off in a 28-hour audiobook. So, but I, it, I still hated having a touch screen 
because I'm so used to with my shuffle, I don't have to look at it to pause it or do the volume or to skip back and forth and to have to get something out and activate it and touch the screen and do all that was just such a pain in the butt. Use the headphones, the headphone button. Oh, do they work with that? I don't think yeah. I have it. This is just a cheap like skull candy something or other. Oh, oh get the one with the little up and down. The little doohickey. The anyway, yeah. my user experience on those, I hope they no longer make iPod touches because <laughs> two out of five stars. Um, well, I wanted to talk about some uh, something that has been kind of a huge part of my life. Speaking of Mad Magazine, I remember ever since I was a kid, um, being really fascinated by the art of M.C. Escher. Uh, and M.C. Escher is something is an artist I think everybody is super familiar with. Uh, in case you don't know, he did, like if you've seen the movie Labyrinth or even in the movie Inception, he did a lot of the visual illustrations of impossible things. So like um, staircases that the the... I don't even know how to describe it. It's like like at the end of Labyrinth when the staircases go up and down and there's no correct position or perspective. Um, he did a lot of the interlocking um, things like lizards and stuff like that that would all fit into each other and those types of things. And the hands drawing the other pair of hands is another very famous or the waterfall that keeps going up no matter how you look at it. So I think people are kind of generally familiar with it. And one thing that... Um, uh, so I'd like to talk about him a little bit. And one thing that my research kind of pointed out that that I realized is that while he is super well known, he I feel like is sort of gets short shrift from the art community and just from artists in general because his stuff is considered kind of cold and very, very mathematical, which we'll get into. Hmm. Um but everybody is very familiar with him, and he's a lot more contemporary, I think, than than I kind of have in mind because he died in 1972, so he was alive the same time that you were. So, um, But he was born Maritus Cornelius Escher in Leuwarden, Friesland, Netherlands. So he is a Dutch person hmm. uh, known to his friends as Mauk, which I am going to start calling you Mauk. <laughs> <laughs> so like a lot of uh, artistic kids, he was a sickly child and placed in special schools and um, he wasn't super great at school and um, but he was he was good at art and knew that and so went to study architecture and didn't really like architecture. And so one of his professors uh, suggested that maybe he'd go into graphic arts and uh, graphic design. And so that's what he ended up kind of falling into. And so after he gets a little bit of education in school, he spends a lot of time traveling and ends up uh, in Italy and Spain. And if you go to a lot of churches, especially in, in Spain uh, and Madrid and Toledo and Granada in Spain, they have um, all of that really intricate tile work that you often see in mm. the Mideast, uh, Middle East in general. If you've seen like mosques and stuff, how they'll have the repeating tile patterns that sort of go on forever you know, as long as you expand that little piece of it, it will still all kind of match up. And so he kind of became fascinated with those and repeating patterns and uh, geometrical symmetries of uh, the Moorish architecture, that's called, um, and something called tessellations. And we'll get a little bit more into tessellations later, but tessellations basically are kind of that repeating pattern 
um, that that can expand and is very, very mathematical. Now, what's interesting is that he wasn't at all um, a, a math person and he didn't study it and he wasn't particularly good mm. at it. But uh, as his career unfolds and as we find out more like math and his work are just hand in hand and math ma mathematicians use his illustrations to teach things like plane geometry and symmetry and all of these things, even though he didn't really have that much of a formal training. So um, when he was in Italy, he did get married to a, a woman, a Swiss woman named Yetta. And they had three, uh, three sons, and we probably won't hear much more about them today because he didn't, he was kind of one of those married to work men. So, um, I do believe his wife ended up leaving him very, um, uh, after 15 or 20 years or so, just because he kind of ignored everything that wasn't, uh, that wasn't work. But while in Italy, he, um, would do a lot of landscapes or like he would, um, and wood carvings and those types of things is what he really studied. And so like he would do uh, landscapes and like the um, the sea edge of Italy, um, Italian cityscapes and stuff like that. And he would always kind of change the perspective just to either make it look a little interesting. He didn't really like um, things being super photorealistic, but he wanted them to kind of be realistic, but but not possible at the same time and he kind of starts starts messing around and things like that he doesn't go fully into kind of the mathematics thing uh, quite yet but um so he's living in italy and had to leave in 1935 because uh, mussolini came under power and and uh it says he didn't uh he was averse to fanaticism and hypocrisy and so when one of his sons uh was made to wear a military uniform in school uh, he took off to switzerland where he lived for two years and then he went to belgium um then they ended up back in the netherlands during world war ii and uh this is where he produces most of uh the work that uh he is famous for so going back to the idea of mathematics um, and kind of what I said, his his um, relationship with the art world, there was a, a disconnect because he was famous and his works were popular. He eventually, you know, he was in Time magazine and Life magazine and Led Zeppelin used some of his stuff for uh, their covers. And obviously it works into our childhoods with movies like uh, Labyrinth and then Inception even. Uh, so he's really well known and famous. But like I said, his stuff was deemed as too intellectual and insufficiently lyrical to really be uh, embraced by the art community. But um, so that idea of tessellation is uh, what we see a lot. And he would use lizards and birds and reptiles and they would each, they each kind of exist next to each other, but as their own background. So you can never really see both of them at once, if that makes sense. So if you're looking at one lizard shape, that lizard shape is made up of the negative space of the lizards around it. And that repeating pattern is what makes all the different things. And one of my favorite things from uh, being a kid uh, is MC Escher did a three meter long um, draw or wood carving called Metamorphosis 3. And I had a puzzle that was about three meters long and about a foot tall. So it was just this really, really long strip. And it went from like squares to a city to beehives to bees and then to another. And it just kind of 
metamorphized over this series of things. And it was this gigantic puzzle that I put together and then hung on my wall. And it was such a fun puzzle to make. But um, so as he's doing these, what's that? Oh, I didn't say that. I'm suddenly hearing myself like hella echo. That's weird. Hello, Todd. Sorry. Hello, Todd from the future. Um, but as he's doing these repeating patterns, he studies this mathematician who is into crystals and crystallography. Um, and he discovers that what he's doing and some of the shape uh, along with the with the tessellations like the long strips, he'll also do um, what it looks like those tessellations mapped over a sphere. So um, you'll see that the images not only repeat to the horizon line of the edge of the ball, but get smaller and smaller and smaller um, exponentially. And so he's doing a lot of that and designing a lot of those, a lot of those shapes. And he realized that he is mimicking the structure of crystals. And so once he talks to these crystallographers, the crystallographers send him like 12 or 17 different illustrations of how different crystal forms grow. And it just blows MC Escher's mind because he's like, oh, this is what I've been doing just instinctively to make my my things. And like uh, uh, MC Escher kept a diary. And uh, so one of the things is that the notebooks and diaries were evidence of the fact that Escher had become a research mathematician of the highest order, regardless of his personal feelings of his mathematical insecurity. He had developed his own categorization system, which covered all the possible combinations of shape, color, and symmetrical properties. And uh, as such, he had unknowingly studied areas of crystallography for years in advance of any professional mathematician working in the field. And so mathematicians become just entranced by Escher's ability to not really know how he's creating these infinite patterns and infinite geometries and these symmetries that, you know, you do need algorithms at some point for that. He's just, uh, kind of doing on his own. So as, as he's getting more into this math stuff, he becomes friends with all these mathematicians and professors and all these people that are interested in all these crazy theories. And he becomes friends with, um, Lionel Penrose or, uh, a mathematician named Roger Penrose and his, uh, his father, who was a biologist named Lionel Penrose. And you may have heard of Penrose because there's something called the Penrose triangle. And that is that triangle that isn't really possible the way it's shaped. It's a 3D triangle and it looks like two sides are at odds and you can make yep. it in real life, but it like only if you're looking at it from the right way, uh, that's called right. a Pemrose triangle. And it was, um, okay. his, this, this biologist, his mathematician son, just for fun used to be like, let's create impossible objects. <laughs> which sounds like the Mark and Todd guest from hundred years ago. <laughs> totally. And so they sent, um, uh, so the creation of these impossible objects was like super intriguing to MC Escher. And so they sent him that, that Pemrose triangle. And um, we've all seen too, uh, MC Escher made famous what's called the, the ever ascending staircase, the ascending and descending. And it's this square mm-hmm. uh, staircase on top of what looks like this house. 
and there's people going up. There's uh, human shapes going up and sh- human shapes going down. And it always looks like they're going down or they always look like they're going up. It's just this optical illusion. He also got that from these uh, from the Pemroses because they drew that out and then built one in real life. That was also their experiment. Like, can we reproduce this in real life from certain angles and stuff like that? So not only the ascending and descending that uh, MC Escher ended up drawing, also the that waterfall, the continuous waterfall where there's a water wheel and then a um, river that appears to flow uphill through all these columns that look are all from different perspectives. And when you look close, they're falling on the wrong sides of things to kind of enhance that illusion. That was also um, based on that drawing from the Pemroses. So um, a lot of uh, what's called infinity and the hyperbolic geometry, where it's something that's wrapped around a sphere, but it's not just that sphere's distortion. It's the, the tessellation getting smaller and smaller exponentially towards the, horizon so that it looks like it goes on into infinity um so by 1958 escher had achieved remarkable fame and uh he was in time magazine and life magazine and he was giving a lot of lectures and uh, writing to people and mathematicians he gave a lot of presentations to mathematicians even though he readily admitted that he was not very very good at it but would just talk about um his process and how he was coming up with with all of that so um he fell ill in 1964 while delivering some lectures and was forced to cut down his schedules uh quite a bit um and he ended up dying of a prolonged uh illness in 1972 so despite his wider popularity mc escher has few direct artistic successors and that's true because i can't really think of anyone that kind of rep reproduces his style that is purely like sort of artistic mathematics, which is an interesting little genre of things to be in. Right. Um, yeah. So he's still encouraging artists and stuff like that. And, and, uh, Oh, to follow up. So in 1995, there was a paper published that proved that Escher had achieved uh, mathematical perfection in one of his etchings called circle limit. So Circle Limit 3 was created using only simple drawing instruments and Escher's intuition, but the paper proved that Escher got it right to the millimeter, to the absolute millimeter, um, uh, just by doing it through his intuition and his own technique. So just fascinating to look at his stuff. And I had this great oversized uh, book of MC Escher prints and just to... Not only that he was able to do that, but he was able to reproduce it in things like wood cutting, where you're literally carving out um, little pieces. So he also did a great uh, a great self portrait where he it's into a reflection ball and the room around him. Mm. He did a lot of things like that and just a lot of neat perspective things that that work so well together that they feel both real and surreal at the same time so i just always loved his stuff and just have been had been fascinated by him so i thought i would find out a little bit more about him so the end yeah i had i i think like a lot of um youths I had my Escher phase and it was like 
14 or 15 yeah. years old and I had gone to uh, the uh, in at Berkeley University in California there was the the Berkeley Hall of Science has a uh, a little museum there and they had some originals and and it was a, a touring uh, exhibit of MC Escher stuff and like from that moment on I was just fascinated yeah and, you know and just I had uh, one of the wa- I was in- it's great into watches growing up I, ha- I had a mad magazine watch actually it had alfred e newman <laughs> and his arms were the were the <laughs> were the arms of the clock and they would point in wacky directions but i also had this really cool mc escher watch and it was the um i believe it's called night and day where it's the birds the black birds. the black birds and the um and it was just the part where the birds went into each other and it was this cool black and white uh, watch and yep. I had that for and that puzzle I had for years and yeah his stuff has just been fascinating and I think it's the woodcut element that I think really adds to it because it gives yeah. it a really neat and unique realism but not real and but right yeah it's like a Wall Street Journal photo uh, totally <laughs> <laughs> I like that they still do woodcuts in Wall in uh, in the Wall Street Journal it makes me feel safe somehow <laughs> totally. Ah, anyway, so what's what's coming up with Mark the next week? Any, are you doing anything? I've, are we just, dying? I'm writing, what's going on? Writing code. I'm writing code. I'm I'm in the thick of uh, a massive project that we're like fifty percent into, and I'm at the tail end of another project that keeps on getting delayed because the first project is taking up all my time. And so it's it, so I'm literally just trying to do both of these projects and wrap up this this other one. And uh, uh, and so I'm just writing a lot of website code and uh, making websites great. So, <laughs> making uh, websites great again. My, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, awesome. Well, next week you will be uh, joining Brian and me for Portland at the Movies, where we will be reviewing Fire in the Sky. Uh, have you ever seen that movie? No. Okay. So Brian, it's one of his, um, I had never seen it before last week. And Brian said it's one of his kind of one of his favorite movies. So we actually, and I watched it and I enjoyed huh. it. So I am excited to finally have a Portland at the movies movie that is huh. actually kind of good. So it's about alien abduction in, Love a, it. in a small town. So join us for that. Um, other than that, I don't know. You'll be you'll be hearing something at the end of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and here it is. We're so excited and about here it. Here it is. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening and thanks for making time, Mark. Vulnerable. 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 Vulnerable.